not going to want to miss next week. Next week, we're going to conclude this series, and it is probably the most famous of all the letters. I like the language that Jesus uses. He's kind of crude in it a little bit. That might seem a little weird, but Jesus, he takes the stuff that he's talking about in these letters very serious. He takes our heart, the condition of our heart, very serious. He, he's more concerned with your heart than what you do. Because you can do all the things that you think you need to do for God, but if your heart's not in it, if your heart's not healthy, God is like, you're just wasting your time. And I don't want to waste my life. I don't want to waste my time. We only have one life to live, right? And so we're continuing this series, and this is an important one. It's a little bit different. The topic is a little bit different. You're going to see it, and you go, what, what do you mean? See, because I say this a lot, but pastors have about 12 sermons, and they just recycle them, put different titles and different passage of scripture to prove it. This one's a little bit different than I'm used to. So I had to do a little bit of digging. I had to do some Bible study today. There's some phrase that stuck with me as I'm reading it, not for the first time, but for the first time this last week, Monday morning, Monday afternoon, something I can't remember, but it, it stuck with me and I had to go do a little Bible study. When you read the Bible, did you notice that there's some things that you don't understand right away? There's phrases that it's like, it's not there on accident, and you don't see it a lot. So when you see something that's not in the Bible a lot, you got to kind of pause a little bit and do some Bible study, okay? Um, it makes it a little bit easier with the invention of the internet a few years ago, um, but you still have to do some hard work. And so we're doing seven letters to seven churches, the, the, the map. I keep putting that up there just in case for the visual learners. I'm a visual learner. When I was in school and they didn't put visual aids on the screen, I wouldn't really remember. Um, but I could remember stuff like that, that, that the idea that this Asia Minor, which is, it's a modern day Turkey, you can go to all these ruins of these cities and they're well known. And so we're in the city of Philadelphia. We're going to, and it would be cool if I had, uh, Philly cheesesteaks to give you guys today, right? Like fresh from Pat's or whatever it is in, in Philly, the famous, world famous. My brother went there a couple months ago and took a picture of him going to that. Anyway, uh, this is not the Philadelphia we're talking about. This is Philadelphia before Philadelphia was cool, before Rocky. Um, and so I love that. I love this. This letter is a little bit different. It's, it's a good letter. Um, but as we get to the... Um, the current one we're going to re, re, review, and we've done Ephesus. That's returning to your first love. If any of these you're like, what does that even mean? You need to go on YouTube if you believe if you have internet. If you don't have internet, I'm, you can you can go on Alexa and ask for Pastor Joel, and it actually is on there. I can I can link it all, and so it's kind of interesting. Um, but if you can't get enough of my voice or my teaching, if you can't stand it go to somewhere else. It's fine. Go to a different YouTube channel. It's fine. But return to your first love. Smyrna was remember God's faithfulness. Pergamum, which I think that's really cool, is refused to compromise. That's the point. Thyatira, all these are pretty cool sounding, resist the enemy. And last week was a very sucker punch to a church that's barely hanging on named the church of Sardis. And it's waking the dead church. Not just sleeping church, like some of us during church. Uh, this is dead church, waking the dead church. This week, I want to say this, and it's going to be a little bit different. It's not going to flow like that. These flow a little bit, and you look and you go, okay, I got it. I understand kind of what that means. This one, you're going to go, what? But hang on with me, because the church of Philadelphia, they were the faithful church. They were a very good church, okay? But the topic of today that God really wanted me to key on is two 
Two points. Receive your keys or receive the key, if you're taking notes. Probably more appropriate would be receive the key, capital K. Okay, this is K, I think. If I, I can't remember. I can't remember how to do K in the sign language. But receive your keys and your new name. Everybody say keys. Keys, that, that, thank you. And, and say new name. New name. Now, this is the second time in these seven letters that it mentions getting a new name. So as I'm, as I'm going through these letters, that sticks out to me, the fact that Jesus talks about a new name twice in seven letters. That's two out of seven. That's a pretty, that's not a good grade if you're taking a math, a math quiz, but in the Bible, that's a pretty good grade. If you have two out of seven that's talking about the same thing, we need to pause there. But then there's this first one, receive your keys or receive the key. There is something that was there that seems so, it, it seems, it, it's like obvious. It was a neon to me. It was like highlighted, not literally, but I could see it glowing. Receive, it was the phrase that we're going to talk about today. And I was like, I cannot ignore that phrase about this key. Okay, so we're going to talk about a key, which doesn't seem relevant to church. Or like, okay, well, I just want to talk about how to feel better and to how to experience more of the presence of God. And I get it. We're going to talk about two important things I really believe that we can't just rush past. This key and the fact that you have a new name. There's a name that's printed on your forehead in heaven. I don't know if it's literal. I know, I know that you'll have a tattoo or Jesus has a tattoo on his thigh, right? It's in the, it's in the revelation. He has a tattoo. People freak out about when I say that, but he has a name that's printed on his thigh. It's, it's a tattoo. Okay. But you have two names that are written on your forehead in heaven. We'll talk about what they are, but new name, receive your keys. Hang on to that. So we're going to go to um, Revelation chapter 3. Remember, this is side notes. It has nothing to do with my sermon, but remember what the name Philadelphia means, brotherly love, okay? And you're like, I'm a girl. We can't have brother. It's, it's this close friendship. It's brothers and brothers. It's like what happens in small group or what happens when we're hunting or we're fishing. It's, it's a brotherly love. It's like, man, I love you, man. Hey, I love you too, right? Hey, how you do That kind of thing. And so sisterly love, it would be a little bit different, but it's the same idea. So that's a side note. The city of brotherly love is what this town was called. And so let's go to Revelation chapter 3. verse. We're going to pause at verse 7 for just a moment. And I could have paused at any of these, but there were two things that really stood out to me today, uh, this last week, and I really needed to focus on just those things. It says, write this letter to the angel of the church in Philadelphia. This is the message from the one. This is talking about Jesus. Every time he says, dear church, I am, and he fills in the blank, a few new things. I am the message from the one who's holy and true. I could have focused on that. We're not going to, we're not going to focus on the fact that Jesus is, he's holy. He's separate from everything else. He is above and beyond what we think he is. And he's true. He's right. Everything he does, Everything he does in your life, whether you feel it or not, is right. Okay? But I'm also the one who has the key of David. Everybody say key of David. Okay, this is not a trick question. I had to look this up. How many of us, on the top of our heads, we know what that means right now? It's not a trick question. You don't have to feel like a dummy, a Bible dummy. Look, I am a product of Bible quiz which, you know, you have this little thing and you, and they ask you a question. You, it's like Jeopardy. You, eh, and then you answer the question. Mine, when I did it for the year, was the book of Acts. I had to memorize the book of Acts and then there were questions based on it. Okay. And, uh, 
But when I got to the key, when I get to the key of David, I'm reading this this week, I would have failed it because I was like, well, I don't know what that, I know who David is, King David, right? But the key of David, what does that even mean? So Jesus has a key of David. What's a key for? It opens what? Doors. Yeah, not a trick question, okay? It opens doors. What also does a key do? Locks doors. So it opens doors, and instead of, you could, don't do this. I don't recommend this online. When you go to your, to someone's house, and you go, boom, you kick up. You can kick it open that way, but you can do a proper way. You get the key. Okay, over the years of living in Kamei, people have given me their key. Like as a, you know, if I'm taking care of their dog or I'm doing something, that's, over the years, we've been that for people. You know, well, and I still have keys on my key ring that I have no idea. I can't remember whose they are. So you may, we may have a key that goes to your old door. You've changed locks since then. Okay. So if I want to go in your house and I don't want to kick it open or use a credit card, you use the key that belongs to the person. If they give me the key, they give me the authority, right? What's the key mean? Authority. It gives me the authority to open doors and then to and use the old old ways, not where we can lock the doors like that, but use the same key to lock it. And without kicking the door in, it's impossible to open that door unless you have a key. Then people, I, when I was a kid, everybody talked about these skeleton keys, which was a kind of weird term, but it was like a key to all doors. We wanted that special key at the school. Right, open up every door. Lydia at least used to have that key, or she still does. You know, it's like every key to the school system, she has that key. I'm like, oh, you know, but he has, he's not only the one who's holy and true, but he's the one who has the key of David. He has the key. What Jesus opens, no one, no one, no one can close. And what he closes, no one can open. He's talking about doors here. Okay, now this is where the Bible study came in clear for me because what Jesus is quoting here is not just making stuff out of thin air. He's quoting scripture. We're going to read something a little bit later that's going to be very reminiscent of this. Okay. He's quoting something that they would have known, but he's saying, this is who I am. This is who you thought this key of David was for, but it's actually for me because when he talks about the key of David, it's talking about a specific person. Do you guys know who it is on the top of your head? I didn't either. I would have failed that in the Bible quiz. But I had to do some Bible study this week. And there's nothing wrong with that. That was actually a good thing to go down the rabbit hole of what the Bible actually means. Because it opened up the floodgates of what this actually means to me. Because I used to read this letter by itself. Because I read all of them for years. But by the time I got to Philadelphia, I'm like, I, I don't get it. And I just went, okay, whatever. You ever guilty of that like me? Whatever, I don't understand it, but I'm just going to keep going. We should be asking God, the Holy Spirit, who is our guide, what does this mean? And not only that, but you can go through, do some research on your own. So he opens doors no one can close. And so I want you to know this. This is a side note, but God's going to open up doors of opportunity and blessing in your life. And the second thing that God wants you to know about the doors is he is in charge of locking doors that need to be locked. Do not go in those doors. Do not go in those old doors that lead you to places that you do not need to go. If he locks the door, don't steal the key from Jesus and don't kick the door in. Don't use your credit card and your spirit to unlock that door. 
Because some of us, including me, are guilty of going in those doors that are locked. How do I get in? Well, I go and grab the key from Jesus, who's got the key of David, who is that skeleton key of authority, and I'm going to go through the path. Jesus says, stay away from the of condemnation because that's not who you are anymore. I took that on on the cross. It was nailed to the cross. The Bible is very clear. Your sin was taken care of. How? Magically disappeared? No. It was nailed with Jesus to the cross. Two things died that day when Jesus died. Jesus died physically, but your sin, your condemnation, your conviction of sin, all that, your prison sentence was nailed to the cross and died. And the only way that you can get it back, if you go up there to the cross and you grab it back on there, or you more physically, you go into a grave, the tomb of Jesus, that he's not there, but your sin's still there forever. Gone. Verse 8. I know all the things that you do. And Jesus says that a lot about these churches. Sometimes that's a bad thing. This one, he knows the good that they do. And I've opened, here's the door phrase again. So the door thing is huge. The key thing is huge. I've opened a door for you that no one can close. In other words, I've opened up opportunity for you. I've changed your life. I've done all that. I'm the one that has the key of David. And I've unlocked doors to you. You have little strength. Everybody say little strength. That is awesome. That right there is the, it determines a lot of people's lives. How many of us, you don't have to raise your hand. If you were, to, this is not just going, I'm, I'm more tired than I ever have been. This is a church who is weary. This is a church that is hard to keep going. The only way that they're putting one foot in front of the other is because they have the power of the Holy Spirit and they don't wave the white flag. They don't give in. They don't give up. They're just going to keep going, but yet they have little strength. Yet, you have obeyed my word. You did not deny me. In other words, you are so tired. You're tired of being tired as a church. You're weary. Yet, what happens when I'm weary? In, in life, when I'm weary and I'm just tired of being tired, I want to throw in the towel. I want to give up. If I was a boxer and I'm sitting there getting my head beat in by Mike Tyson... Well, that would make me want to give up first. But if I'm just sitting there dancing and, and, and floating like a bee and stinging like a, whatever it is, you know, I'm, I'm a little too young for that, floating like a bumblebee or whatever, butterfly, no, whatever, sting like a bee, bumblebee, whatever. But I'm doing this a lot. I'm like, I'm tired. I just want to sit down. And that's what I would do. B, this church, while they were still very weary, they were the weary church, but they're the faithful church. So just because you're weary does not mean you have to throw in the towel. You keep going. They remain faithful to God even when they, when everything said in their body, in their physical body and their spiritual body and the church said, you need to give up. Be done. Lock the church doors and be done. He said, no. We're going to do what God calls us to do. Verse 9. And we're not going to really focus on this a lot because it does talk about something we've already mentioned in week three. Look, I will force those who belong to Satan's synagogue. Pause. There was a group of people, we already talked about this, that were floating from church to church. And they were sneaking in and they were saying, I'm Jewish, I'm, I'm Jesus' people, we're God's people. Yet they were not truly Jesus' people. They were trying to sway churches to go one way or the other. Don't follow Jesus. They said, they, those liars who say they're Jews but they're not, I've forced these Satan synagogue people 
and Satan and his demons, I'm going to force them to come to you and bow down at your feet and, and not worship you. But what are they going to do? They're going to acknowledge that you are the ones that I love. Physically, what that really means is Satan at some point is going to have to stop what he's doing and say, and I, he's going to admit, I admit you are God's beloved. You are doing what I had for all eternity, for when God created me, Satan, I'm talking about Satan. I had everything, but I lost it all. I lost the keys. I lost authority. And now God is raising up us, the church, the people of God. And Satan, not only is he going to worship Jesus for all eternity, he has to stop and admit the church, you and I, and I had to use this, this phrase came into my mind and stuck with me all day or all week. You are God's beloved. I, I, I've read, I've, I've heard that statement my entire Christian life. Um, trying to think of the author. It's, uh, the author wrote, I re- really highly recommend the book. It's Ragamuffin Gospel. Brendan Manning. Brendan Manning, um, which if you've ever heard of him, you need to look him up. Brendan Manning. Um, a lot of his books he talks about. The Ragamuffin Gospel is, is required reading, in my opinion. It's one of those books I've re- returned to over and over and over. And one of the phrases that he uses in his ministry, he's gone to be with the Lord a while ago, but um, was, you are God's beloved. That phrase caused me to humble myself before God and say, Lord, thank you that I'm God's beloved. I'm not God's trash. I'm not God's accident and his mistake, and he's just fixing the pieces up. I am God's beloved. And so that's what Satan's going to have to acknowledge at some point. Verse 10. I love this. Because you have obeyed my command to persevere, because you have not given up in the face of weariness, I will protect you from the great time of testing that's going to come upon the whole world to test those things who belong to this world. Pause. There's a, there's a disagreement among people who read that verse. Is he talking about something that's going to happen in the first or second century, or is he talking about the end times? And I'm going to say, yes. <laughs> Based on the next verse. Okay? But if you look at history of the first century and the second century, probably more like the tale, this is 95 A.D., that Jesus is talking about this. So you're going to the, you're getting close to the second century. And if you look at history, if you look at the Roman history and you look at Jewish historians, you will see that the early church and the world, this, this world went through extreme wars and they went through extreme horrible, horrible, um, stuff. So in my opinion, and he's talking about this, he's talking about something that's happening in that generation. Okay. Many people in that generation, they were arrested and they were burned at the stake. They were fed to the lions. They were ripped apart. They were cut with swords. They were boiled in oil. They were cast upon islands. They were, they, 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 they took their arms and they stretched them and, and broke their arms. I mean, it's gross. This is what happened in the first and second century. And it still happens to this day in some countries. Okay. But because you have not given up church in Philadelphia, I'm going to actually protect you from the great time of testing that's going to come upon the whole world to test those who belong to this world. They're going to test the churches to see who is actually his and who is actually the world's. Verse 11, which, remember, 
A day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day to the Lord. So don't, when you look at this, some of us are going to go, hmm, I'm coming soon. Like, I want you to go into the car, and I'm going to get ready for, I'm going to get ready for, and you guys get in the car, warm it up. 2,000 years later, you're still waiting in the car, waiting for him or her, I won't say who, to get ready for the day. Okay, while you're, while you're starting and warming up the car. Okay, 2,000 years is a long time, Jesus. Jesus is still in the home getting his hair ready, whatever. I know he's not doing that, but he's, 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 he's doing stuff to prepare, the, and he's got patience. But I'm going, I'm coming soon. Hold, Philadelphia, and to church around the world, hold on to what you have so that no one will take away your crown. We talked about crown. That simply means life. That means victory. That means you've crossed the finish line. Okay? Verse 12. All those who are victorious will become pillars in the temple of my God. This verse is rich in imagery. I love it. I love this entire thing. I want you to think about this in, 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 um, connection with your future, who Jesus says you are. Okay. You're not garbage. You're his. So I'm, if you're victorious, if you stick with it, if you keep going with the Lord, if you don't give up on yourself and him and the church, he's going to, he's going to, uh, right. He's going to, uh, be, you're, you're going to become in the pillars in the temple of my God. And they, the church, you and I will never have to leave it. How many of us are looking forward to a day that you get to spend eternity physically with Jesus? Now I like church. I wouldn't waste my time with church if I didn't enjoy it. Trust me. Okay. I wouldn't. I enjoy spending time with you. I wouldn't waste my time if I was like, Oh, I, but there's something missing. Jesus is here through the power of the Holy Spirit, but someday we're going to see him face to face and we'll never have to leave it. And he will never have to be gone. There will never be this shadow that appears to be hiding him. He will always be there. Okay? And they'll never leave it. And I will write on them. Here's the names. I will write on them. Who? The church. You. I'll write on them the name of my God. So, in the future, whether it's physical or not, I don't know, you're going to have some tattoo or piece of paper in your pocket, whatever. Probably not, because that's not what it says. We'll see it in just a minute. You will have the name of God written. Spoiler, it's on your forehead. Okay? And, I love this, they, the church, will be citizens in the city of my God and the new Jerusalem that comes down from heaven from my God. You will live with God forever in this new city. I can't wait. If Jesus took a, a, a millisecond creating this world with just the snap of his fingers and his words, he's been spending 2,000 years getting this new heaven ready. I have, I mean, I have no idea I can't imagine how beautiful and how wonderful and how perfect it's going to be. But 2,000 years is a long time for him to be ready. He's saying, hey, I'll be right back. 2,000 years later, he, he peeks out the door. He goes, okay, you got, I'll be right back. Another 2,000 years later, I'll be right back. It's like, can I shut the car off right now? I'm running out of gas here. Jesus says, I'll be right back. And I will also write on them my new name. Hmm. That could mean Jesus 
his eternal name. So you have the name of the Father and of Jesus written on you. And you're filled with the Spirit of God. Or it could mean the new name that he has for you. Which, it could be both of them. Because earlier in the letter of Revelation, it says that he gives you a new name. So there's a couple, there's a couple explanations for that. And then it goes verse 13. Anyone, he always ends the letter with this. This is like him saying, love Jesus. Okay? Anyone with ears to hear, you must listen and be teachable to the Spirit and understand what he's saying to the what? Churches, plural. This is not a letter to Philadelphia, period. This is a letter to Philadelphia and to you, to me. This is what we've got to listen and understand. What is Jesus really saying? Let's not just go through the motions of the church. Let's not just go through the motions as a Christian. Let's listen to what he's saying and actually do what he's saying. Let's be obedient to his will. So there's two points and that's it today. Everybody, some people are getting excited. How long are these points, Pastor? You'll have to wait. Each one is three hours long. No, um, the first point is receive your keys. Or again, the more appropriate, I should have put receive the key, capital K, okay? Whatever, I'm right-handed. Capital K. Receive your key. And when Jesus introduces himself to the church in Philadelphia, he says, I am the one with the key of David. Now, that's, that sounds great, but what does it mean? Again, when I go through a sermon, when I, when I get ready for a sermon, the very first thing I do is I open up the Bible and I read that what I'm going to preach out loud a few times. Both times that I read out loud, before I even put any words on this paper or on, the, on my notes, this phrase, key of David, stuck out like a sore thumb. Because I said, that sounds cool, but what does that even mean? I know who David is, but Jesus has the key of David. What does that mean? I mean, I can make some guesses, but you don't have to make guesses. It actually is referring to something in the Old Testament. And there's, if you look at the entire Bible, there's actually twice that it mentions key of David. One time in the Old Testament, and one time right here. So when something is not in the Bible a lot, it's very easy to go, I need to connect it somehow. Jesus is not just throwing out a random thing. He's saying, I have the key, and definitely definitely, the new name, he's not being accidental when it comes to Philadelphia. We'll talk to you that in a minute. But I was, to be truthful, I had to do some bi- true Bible study in this, what that meant. And so when Jesus is saying he has the keys of David, he is referring to a specific story about a man in the Old Testament about a man named Shebna. Now, this is not a trick question. This doesn't make you not a real Christian. How many of us on the top of our head know who Shebna is? Me neither. And I spent a lot of money in college, Bible college. I had to go back to the Old Testament to get this crazy uh, reference that Jesus knows. He knows his Bible. I don't. Obviously, no, that's a joke. Um, I, I just, it's hidden in there. And when we look at the story for just a moment of Shebna, it's going to be very, there's two things, there's two keys to this, to use that reference, there's two keys to this story. Number one, when you read the story of Shebna in the Old Testament, it is referring to a physical story that actually took place historically in the Bible. It really did. But the other the other key that you need to bring into this situation, or the other side of the coin, is it has very much spiritual 
uh, imagery, as, as symbolism when it comes to um, what happens with Jesus and Satan. When you read the story of Shebna, it's so obvious. Like, this is talking about the fall of Satan, and it's talking about the, raise, the raising up of Jesus Christ. Okay? But this is why the Old Testament is important. This might be your takeaway today. Get this. Because I used to think that I don't need to read the Old Testament. It's a waste of time. I used to think that. Until I read it the very first time all the way through, I thought, there is nothing in the Old Testament that's accidental, or the New Testament, but there's nothing in the Old Testament that's there on accident. There's nothing there that you go, well, why is that there? Even though you read it and you go, oh, everything's meaningless. Well, then if that's the truth, why put it in there, right? Ecclesiastes, everything's meaningless. If that's true, why'd you write it down, right? But everything in the Bible happened, and it's a shadow of things to come. That's going to open up the door to the Old Testament and it's going to give you a brand new appreciation of the stories in the Old Testament because it's not only did it happen, it's a shadow of things to come, including Shebna. And so just because you don't know who Shebna is now, you're going to know who Shebna is. And you're going to listen and go, how important is he? He's very important, but he's not a good guy. His whole story represents Satan. You say, are you sure? You, we'll read it and you'll, you'll tell me, you can disagree with me. Okay. But, um, actually, I would have missed this one in Bible quiz too. Who's she- Pastor Joel, who's Shabna? I would have been like, who's going to push the button? It's like when you watch Jeopardy and there was a few times where nobody knew what it was. And that's, that's rare because those people on Jeopardy are geniuses. And yet nobody knows. Usually it's the Bible ones. I'm like, oh, I know that one. Unless they said Shebna, then I wouldn't, right? But um, Shebna was actually King Hezekiah, which you may have heard the guy named King Hezekiah somewhere, right? He was King Hezekiah's steward. And what I mean by that is he had this key, physical key, that was enabled to lock any door in the kingdom or any door for the king's uh, resources, if the people of the city and the people of Israel needed a resource, Shebna was the one with the key. He had the authority to open that door of the king's resources. The king owned it, but Shebna was the steward of his of the king's resources, and he was able to divvy out what the people needed. Okay, if you kind of use your heart a little bit and your brain a little bit, you can kind of see how that already, and I haven't even read it yet, how that that's kind of like what Jesus does. He has the king's resources to save people, and he is the one with the key. He is the one with the authority. He's the one that opens up doors that you need to go through, and he's the one that can lock doors. Shebna was the person in the Old Testament that had that key originally, but he did something that caused his fall, which sounds very familiar, Satan's fall. Again, I can't help, but this will open up your eyes in the Old Testament. The Old Testament is not a waste of time. It is a shadow of things to come. You will see the parallel. I dare you to do a study on the book, uh, on the story of Moses and look at the parallel between he, him and Jesus. It's, it's startling that how much God knows and how much he prepared in advance. Nothing is accidental. So let's look at this. Isaiah 22. Isaiah 22. This is what the Lord, the Lord of heaven's army, said to me. Confront Shebna, here he is, 
No wonder we don't know who he is. He's just tucked into Isaiah 22. Most people go into Isaiah, you know, in the 60s and they go, they go in the higher, uh, they go in the higher ones talking about Jesus. Again, there is a phrase in this passage that is very much prof, uh, prophetical towards Jesus. Confront Shebna, the palace administrator. He's this steward and give him this message. Who do you think you are? Pause. There's two ways to get that. If someone says, who do you think you are? Number one, it's usually a bad thing. I had a teach, I had my brother's teacher. If she's watching, I get, I, I, I doubt it, but I, I'm sorry, Mrs. Shaw. She told me that one time. Who do you think you are? Because I was throwing rocks or something like that. That was not a good thing when someone says, who do you think you are? But if Jesus says to you in a very humble, loving way, hey, Dwayne, who do you think you are? A lot of ways he's saying, who do you say you are? Forget about who you think you are. Who do I say you are? So that's, there's two different ways. But this one, who do you think you are, Shebna? And what are you doing here? I'm a steward of, of the king. I have the key of David. He, Hezekiah, the king, gave me the special key. The key of David is this king of the, the key, the key of the king. Right? But you're here building a beautiful tomb for yourself, a monument high up in the rock. I could have showed you a picture, but you have, there's evidence of this happens all the time. There's a big, huge cliff in the ancient world, and there's these buildings that are in the rock. They're, they're tombs. You can't really get to them anymore. They're in the middle, and this is what he was doing. So what he's doing with, is he spending his own money? No. Who's he spending the money, whose money is he spending? The king's resources. What was the king's resources used for? The people. But instead of blessing the people with the king's resources, he was taking the money and he was blessing himself. He was making himself to be higher than he really was. Who does that sound like? The devil. You're like, it sounds like my husband. No, 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 no. It's talking about the devil. If you're more Christian, you would say, that sounds like me, right? If you're being honest. But it's talking, I mean, it's very, very, very close to how Satan was. He made a name for himself. Look how big I am. Look how, that's the only way that they made a beautiful tomb for yourself. A monument high up in the rock. Because rich people did that. People that wanted to be known that they're rich. The biggest, most beautiful tomb. My opinion is if I'm dead, I honestly don't, you know, it's interesting when you go to cemetery, when you go to cemeteries or if you do visit like famous people's graves, people online do this all the time. You go to a famous actor's grave. Some of them are very elaborate, especially the older ones. But the newer ones, more modern ones are just a plain thing. It doesn't say famous actor. It says loving husband, brother, son, whatever. I'm like, that's a humble person. But what do they care? They're gone. So why make a big tomb? You have to be some um, person who is like really into yourself to build this tomb for your future dead self so that you know, hey, I'm rich, but I'm being rich on the king's resources. Verse 17, for the Lord is about to hurl you away, mighty man. What does that sound like? We talked about this a few weeks ago. What happened to the devil? Jesus cast him down from heaven. Very familiar. He's going to grab you. This really happened. 
But it's a very spiritual thing. He's going to take his authority. He's going to take that key away. That key represents authority. He's going to grab you. He's going to crumple you into a ball. Wow. And man, I read this a week ago. I, this is like I read it for the very first time. Like Jesus is going to take so he's going to take someone and crumple you up into a ball and throw you. He's going to throw you, toss you into a distant, barren land. There you will die. And your glorious chariots will be broken and useless. You are a disgrace to your master. You're a disgrace to the king. You had it so good, but you threw it away. And I'm going to take you, and I'm going to take you and throw you. (laughs) I'm going to throw you like a ball into a distant barren land, and you're going to die there, and you're going to not be buried in your beautiful tomb. That's Shebna for you. Okay, if you if you use your thinking caps a little bit, it's so obvious who it, the spiritual reference is to as well. Verse 19. Yes, I'll drive you out of office so you have no authority anymore, says the Lord. I will pull you down from your high position. And then I will call my servant Eliakim. It's possible you've recognized, you heard that name before, Eliakim. Eliakim son of Hilkiah, he's going to replace you. He's going to be the one with the key of David. He's going to be the one that's going to do it right. Again, use your Bible study skills for a little bit. This is physically happening, and God is showing us a picture of something to come later on. So when Jesus says, remember that story about Hezekiah? Remember that story about Hilkiah and Eliakim and Shebna? And everybody's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's me. I'm the one with the key of David. I'm the one with authority. I'm the one that has God's resources. I'm the one that is God's steward of his resources. I'm the one that has the key to the the, the kingdom, if you will. I'm going to have Eliakim replace you. I will dress him in your royal robes, and I'll give him your title. I'll give him your authority. And, And listen to this. This is interesting. He will be the father to the people in Jerusalem and Judah. Huh. Verse 22. I, here we go again. I like Bible study. I'm a Bible study nerd, so I just, I, I, I get goosebumps when I get these connections. I'm like, oh man, I will give him the key of the house of David, a.k.a. the keys of David. I'm going to give him the key to the house of David, the highest position in the royal court. So what does Jesus have? We think, we believe, we, we don't think, we know, we believe that he is God the Son from before time began. But when Jesus humbled himself, came to this earth, he became a man. He had to deal with headaches. He had to deal with bad hair days, whatever, if you're, you know, if you, or he didn't feel good. And some people get messed up with that. Jesus didn't feel good some days. He didn't want to get out of bed. Okay, and he he was tempted with sin, never sinned, but he was tempted like everyone else. The Bible says that. But what? Where is he at right in this second? Right next to the Father, the highest level of authority in the royal court, if you want to call it that. So the parallel is it's way too coincidental to not be a parallel story, just like Moses and Jesus as well. Okay, when he opens doors, here we go. Jesus was not just making up a story. When he opens doors, no one will be able to close them. 
when he closes doors, no one will be able to open them. Does that sound familiar? Huh. It's like Jesus just quoted his Bible, but he's applying this instance to himself. Verse 23. He will bring honor to his family name, for I will drive him firmly in place like a nail in the wall. Pause right there. Think about nails. Just a moment. What was, Je- what was Jesus nailed to the cross with? We can call them nails. He can say spikes, whatever. You know, nail. Pause right there because you're like, no, I don't think, I don't see it. You'll, you'll see. Verse 24. They will give him great responsibility. I love this, this last line. And he will bring honor to even the lowliest members of his family. Think about it. From a spiritual aspect, from a relationship with God aspect, who does Jesus, who did Jesus go to? The lowly. He didn't go to the mighty. He didn't go to the professionals. He didn't go to the good. He went to the lowly. He went to the sinner. He went to the horrible person. He went to the one with the past. He, I don't care what you did in the past. He, you can say you're lowly. He brings honor to even the lowliest members of his family. Who, what family are you part of? The family of God. Man, I get excited about that. You don't need to be a big shot to be in God's kingdom. But someone has to have the keys. Someone has to have the key to unlock the door of salvation to you. Jesus. So Shebna was a steward of the king's resources. He had the keys. He had the authority of the king's resources. But he used the resources to benefit himself. So God said, I'm going to take his position physically, kick him out, and I'm going to raise up someone else, and he's going to get the key. Whoever has the key has the authority and the right to unlock the doors and lead you in. But without that key, you can't go in that door. Without the key, you're stuck. You're, 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 um, you're up a creek without a paddle or whatever it says. You, you're trying your hardest to get to heaven and you can't do it. Try climbing up a waterfall. <laughs> you can't. And you're like, oh, I could do it if I climbed up on vine. No, 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 you couldn't do it. So you need someone with the key. And according to the book of Revelation, Jesus said, Hezekiah, all those people are long gone. Who has the key now? Jesus. He is the permanent authority figure in God's kingdom who has the right to open that door for you, and he has the right to shut doors that don't need to be walked in anymore. So Back in Shebna's day, the person in position, in his position, they had a master key that unlocked every door in the city and palace. They had a skeleton key. And you couldn't get into the resource room without Shebna. And he also protected the king by keeping doors locked. When there was attack, he would use his nice key of David, physical key, and he would lock the gate so people couldn't come in. He had that authority. That was his job. Think about Jesus today. The devil is trying to attack the church like no other. We've got to run and be full of the Holy Spirit. We need to run to Jesus, the one that has the key, and say, Lord, we need you. I need you. Protect me from the schemes of the enemy. And he has the right to do that. Now, There's one more verse in Isaiah 22, and I skipped it the first time. 
but I want to read it right now. It's a little bit weird, but there's definitely a parallel that's often ignored. But it's a, it's, it's a verse that is very much prof, prof, prophetical to Jesus. Verse 25. Think about Jesus. He's on the cross, nailed to the cross. When he dies on the cross, what they have to do, they take him down the cross. He had to fall to the ground, pick him up. But the Lord of heaven's armies also says, the time will come when I will put out, pull out the nail that seems so firm. Okay, Jesus, he had the, when he was on earth, he died. Because, you know what? When Jesus dies, I'm going to do something that he's going to not, he's going, it's, it will come out and fall to the ground. And everything that supports it will fall with it. I, the Lord, have spoken. Now, I read that and I go, it's so easy to want to skip that. I want you to think about this in regards to Jesus on the cross, nailed for your sins. Now, when Jesus was on the cross, he's physically on the cross. They nailed him, not in the hands because he would have, it would have ripped open, probably in this wrist and that wrist, and it would have really, really hurt. I would know I cut the wrist right there. It hurt. There are some main arteries right there that when you pierce it, you die. So Jesus is nailed to the cross. But if you're a Christ follower, if you've ever studied the Bible, what was nailed on the cross with him? Sin. So Everything on that thing that's nailed there is going to fall to the ground. Everything that it supports will fall with it. What's going to fall with Jesus when he finally is on the cross and it's, it is done? He falls to the ground. They bury him in a tomb. So he falls to the ground. What's, what's falling with him? Your sin. It falls with him. Everything that it supports. Everything that nail, that was nailed there. If you don't believe me, look at Colossians 2.14. Colossians 2.14 says it plain, because that one's kind of weird. I got you. He, Jesus, canceled the record of the charges against us, and he took it away by what? By nailing it to the cross. How is your sin forgiven? It was nailed to the cross. You, you, you could do that now. I mean, you, we've done that in the past. We've had a cross up here. We've given people nails, and we said, I want you to take a piece of paper, write your sin on it, and I need you to come up here, and I need you to nail it to the cross and leave it there. We've done that a few times over the years. Maybe it's time for another time we do that. But your sin has been nailed to the cross with Jesus, and when, here we go, when he fell from the cross because he was dead, and they put him in the tomb, what was buried with him? Your sin. And the only way that you can go grab it is if you grab it. How is it that you can go through a locked door without the key? There's two ways that I could do it. A credit card works in my house. It doesn't really, I was just making it up. Or you kick it open. Anyone that opens a door with a credit card or a foot doesn't have the authority to open that door. The homeowner has the authority with the key. Jesus has the key. And the only way that you can go into that door that he locked with your sin is you kick the door open. You don't have the right to that. Jesus has the right for that room that has your sin in it. It is gone. 
And that is what this entire thing is really about. Now, second and last, receive your new name. The interesting thing about the new name of Philadelphia is actually Philadelphia in that world has, this is their third name as a city. They couldn't figure out what their name would be. The, ter- the city of Philadelphia, they, they had, there was an earthquake and it, it ruined the entire city and they didn't have the funds to rebuild it. So the Caesar at the time gave them the funds to rebuild. And so they named the city Neo Caesarea. There already was a Caesarea Philippi. There's a couple Caesareas along the coastline, okay? But they wanted to honor Caesar because they gave them the money. They gave them money. And so they named the city for a while Neo Caesarea, New Caesarea. And at some point, they decided, you know what? We're going to name the city, not Neo Caesar. Caesar. That Caesar is long gone. We're going to name it Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. And... That's interesting. Now Jesus says, I am the one that's going to give you the new name. It is interesting when you read the letters, every single one of them, Jesus used a reference that the city would understand completely, 100%. And um, Revelation 3.12, we read, I will write them on the new name of my God, the name of my God, and they will be citizens of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem. And I will also write on them my new name. See, we've talked about this a few weeks ago. Abram became Abraham. Sarai became Sarah. Jacob became Israel. Simon became Peter. And Paul, Saul, this is kind of cheating because he just, he went by his different names of different languages, you know, but he was going by Paul, his Greek name. Uh, you know, I mean, you can kind of toss that one to the side, but it's very common in the Bible, Old Testament, New Testament, for God to change your name based on who you are going to be or who you are in the future, not who you were in the past. In fact, three verses and we'll be done. Isaiah, again, Isaiah 62, verse 2 says, you will be given a new name. By who? By the Lord's own mouth. You are going to be given a brand new name, and it's not going to be something that you're going to give yourself. It is going to be a name that God gives you. Verse 2, Revelation chapter 14 Verse 1 says, Then I saw the Lamb standing on Mount Zion. That's Jesus. And with him were 144,000. We don't have time to talk about the 144,000. Whole complete religions have been made based on that number, that verse, that number. Okay? That 144,000, they had his name and they had his father's name written on their what? Foreheads. Revelation 22, verse 4. I love this. The last chapter. No longer will there be a curse upon anything, for the throne of God and the Lamb of God will be there, and his servants will worship him, and they will see his face, and his name will be written on their foreheads. So you're going to get a new name. Specifically, you're going to have the name of Jesus written on you, and you're going to have the name of the Father written on your forehead. What does that even mean? I'm going to close it, but I had it. I'm going to close it with an image that I got. It sounds so silly. You got to go back to when you were a little kid. Teddy bear. And you don't want someone to steal that teddy bear. You don't want someone to identify, that's my teddy bear. No, no, no. You write your name on it. I could have said you write your name on your underwear, but teddy bear. Then no one's like, that's my underwear. No, that's my underwear. No, teddy bear. The kid, this is their whole world. 
And the other kid at the playground goes, that's my teddy bear. No, 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 no. No, that's my, I promise that's my teddy bear. No, this one has my name on it. You know, when I was a kid, there was Teddy Ruxpin. It was this one with the tape, the cassette, and it had, you could talk. Scary. Creepy. I named mine Chucky, but that was just beside the point. But when you're a kid, your teddy bear is everything. And you would put your name on it. I put my name on my He-Man figure because everyone had He-Man. He-Man, 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 whatever. It was a toy in the 80, early 80s. But how would you prove that this one's yours? You don't put the Teddy Ruxpin name on it. You don't put Chucky on it. You put your name on it. You don't need to identify what their name is. You put who it belongs to, who they belong to. You put your name on it. And in the same way, I'm sitting there reading, it's going, I cannot help to think, what does this mean? That when Jesus says, you have my name in your father's name, that no one can have you. You are mine. You belong to me. Satan can go, no, he's mine. No, 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 no. Look at his, look, it's written on your forehead that everyone can see. It's all, it's not written here. It's not written here. It's not written here. It's not written under your hair. It is on your forehead for the devil and everyone to see that you belong to God. And that's what that means with a new name. But the reality is, he wants to give you those names I talked about earlier. Redeemed, saved, healed, whole, righteous, right? Holy. Maybe I already said that once. But anyway, you're holy twice. You are who God says you are. That is your name. You're not a product of your past. You are a product of who God says you are from this point forward. Amen? Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, that you change us, that we're not who we were, whose people say we are. We're not who we say we are. We're not who the devil says we are. We are who you say we are. And we're saved, healed, delivered, whole, holy, righteous, brand new. Well, that's who we are. That's who you've named us. But Lord, we thank you that we belong to you. You've put your name on our forehead, and that means that we are your possession. You, We are the beloved of God, and when someone says, no, they don't belong to you, they belong to the devil. They, Lord, you say, no, this one has his name written, and her name written in the Lamb's Book of Life. They are mine. We thank you for this. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you.